we, for example, started looking for hookworm that one of the essential pathways they need is this, is there again, nutritional pathway. So can we block, can we starve them? Can we block their feeding pathways? And that's one, one approach. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. By now, if you live in North America, you've probably got at least two COVID-19 vaccines in your arm. You might have three or four. Another is coming in the fall that might help against the Omicron strain. And are you getting your flu vaccine this year? Gotta get that every year. <sighs> Another shot. Some people might think it's just a small hassle, but for some, even that small hassle is too much. Some people really hate shots and others just aren't super worried about getting sick. In 2021, only 44% of the US population got their flu shot. You might think this affects only you and whether you get the flu or COVID or anything else, but you know better than that. It affects whether you get sick, yes, but also affects whether you pass it on to someone else who might get sicker. What if you could just get one vaccine, just one COVID vaccine and done, just one flu vaccine and no flu could touch you? These vaccines called universal vaccines are a challenge, but they're one that people like Kossar Talat are working on. Kossar Talat is a physician and researcher in infectious diseases and an associate professor at the School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. She is also the principal investigator for the COVID-19 Pfizer vaccine trials for adults and children at Johns Hopkins. Kossar, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you very much, Bethany. It's my pleasure. Um, first, I wanted to check in on what exactly we mean when we talk about universal vaccines, because of course, this is not a shot that protects you from literally everything. <laughs> right, right. So what we mean by universal vaccines is for um, viruses for which there are multiple strains. Can we find a vaccine that can cover all of the strains together in one vaccine? Hopefully one that can last for a long period of time so that we don't have to keep getting repeated updated vaccines. And the, and the virus that we had previously spoken a lot about um, in terms of universal vaccines is influenza, because um, as everybody knows, we get the flu shot every year. Um, that's for several reasons, but one of the main reasons is because the flu virus is constantly changing. And so we need to update our vaccines in order to keep up with it. But now we're using the same terminology in terms of talking about COVID-19 and trying to see if we could find a vaccine that is um, that that maybe will remain as effective even as the variants change. Um, as you mentioned, this is incredibly challenging and um, and so far has um, ev evaded scientists, but something that people are looking into very closely. And I know you've worked specifically on vaccines for COVID-19 and also vaccines for influenza. Mm -hmm. And I also know that every year when we get a flu vaccine, those vaccines are multivalent. They are against several strains of the flu and they can sometimes be trivalent, which is three strains or quadrivalent, which is four. Um, what is stopping us from making a a vaccine against 20 strains or 100, why, why do we make only three or four? And what is the challenge to making a vaccine for more than that? That's a really, really good question. Um, so first, in order to, um, to understand why we have multivalent vaccines for influenza, we need to know a little bit about the biology of influenza viruses. Um, and the influenza viruses that cause our seasonal influenza outbreaks or epidemics um, fall into two big categories, influenza A viruses and influenza B viruses. And within each of these big categories, there are one or two big strains that are circulating. And even though there could be variants of each of these strains that also circulate. They, they, the strains for influenza A fall into two big categories, H1N1 and H3N2. And for influenza B also falls into one or two categories, depending on the year. And often these three or four strains are circulating at different times during the year at different parts of the world. And so we're trying to target all of the strains in the vaccine. 
Now, you can take each of these strains and they might have substrains or subclades um, within them and make many more vaccines, but we're really just trying to hit the main um, influenza viruses that are circulating. And why can't we just go for all of them? Like make a, a vaccine with like a whole bunch inside, like 20 or 100? <laughs> because the, well, one, it's the, the manufacturing capacity, right? So um, with each additional virus that is added to a vaccine, you decrease the number of vaccine doses you can make because you're using more proteins in each vaccine. In addition, as you add more and more strains to the vaccine, it is there is the potential that some of them will interfere with each other and that you won't get as good of an immune response. So when you develop a vaccine with more than, when you develop a vaccine and you need to add more strains, you have to test each vaccine that is developed with the increased number of strains to make sure that the vaccine remains effective even with more strains in it. But it's a balance between trying to get a good immune response to the main viruses that are circulating and to have enough doses to vaccinate everybody who wants the vaccine. And when we talk about creating an immune response, can we talk about how exactly the vaccines do that? They usually target specific parts of the viral code, right? Yes. So for influenza and for COVID, our vaccines are targeting the proteins on the surface of the virus. Um, for influenza, the main target is called the hemagglutinin protein, um, which is the protein that binds to um, our cells and allows the virus to invade the cells. It's also the protein that our immune system responds to most significantly. And it's the protein that, when the immune system responds to it, protects us from either getting sick with influenza or being um, infected with it in the first place. Why those parts? So I know, for example, for COVID-19, the um, vaccines really target the spike protein. And for influenza, they target the hemagglutin. And why those bits? for two reasons. One, they are the proteins that bind to our cells. So if you block them, then they can't bind to the cells. But also, they're the proteins that our immune system recognizes most strongly. And when it responds to these proteins, when we make antibodies and T-cell responses to these proteins, that is how we're protected from infections with influenza or with COVID. And so, it's the, the immunodominant or the strongest immune generating, immune response generating proteins on the virus. But those proteins also are subject to change, right? Like they, they yes, they evolve and they very change quickly. Yes. Right. And and COVID the the spike protein of COVID mutates even more quickly than the hemagglutinin of, of influenza. Um, which is incredibly frustrating for those of us who make vaccines, <laughs> but at the same time makes sense, right? Because if this is the protein from a from a virus perspective, um, makes sense from a virus perspective. So if this is a protein to which the immune system responds to best, and the immune response to these proteins is what protects you from infection and disease, if the virus is trying to infect as many people as possible, it's in its best interest to change that protein or for that protein to evolve and mutate fairly regularly so that it can escape the immune response in people who have either had the infection before or in people who have been vaccinated. So, when we're thinking about 
universal vaccines. So a vaccine that is good against all strains of the flu, all versions of COVID-19. Do we still have to target that spike in, on the coronavirus or the hemagglutinin on the influenza virus? Is there another part of the virus that wouldn't change as quickly and still induce an immune response? So scientists spend a lot of time trying to look for different parts of the viruses that will induce a good immune response that will either protect against infection or at least protect against severe disease. And they're not the same. Um, and one that is conserved, which means that it doesn't mutate at the same rate as some of the other parts of the virus to, um, do. And so for the hemagglutinin, for example, for influenza, it, it consists of a head and a stalk. Think of it kind of like a lollipop with a head on top and a stalk at the bottom. And what we know is that the head, which binds to the receptors on our cells and to which our immune system responds to most strongly, is the part of the hemagglutinin protein that evolves most rapidly. Whereas the stalk, which doesn't induce as good of an immune response, is more conserved. So it's evolving less rapidly. And so there have been many attempts, including um, a clinical trial that started this summer, to target that stock um, for the hemagglutinin for influenza to see if making a vaccine against it is protective and would the and if that protection crosses several strains of influenza viruses and and it would even be it would be even better if that protection lasted longer than one season. For COVID, I think that there's um, also been a lot of interest in trying to find more conserved regions, either of either in the spike protein or in other um, surface proteins of the virus that would allow for a vaccine that would cross uh, protect against many variants. So I was thinking of the hemagglutinin, and I, I do see the lollipop reference when I'm looking at the structure, but actually to me, it's always kind of reminded me of a head of broccoli. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Because That's a good which yeah. works even better for me because like the mm -hmm. tip of the broccoli, like the, the foresty part of the broccoli that looks like the top of a tree is all lumpy and bumpy. So it's like yes. easy for a vaccine to grab onto that and say, here, here, you should react to this. And whereas the stalk of the broccoli is smooth and kind of slippery. So it's harder to grab on. I think that's a great analogy. I love it. It's, it's a broccoli. Move to switch to broccoli. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was also wondering, do you ever just like look at the hemagglutinin or at the coronavirus and just like say, stop mutating already. Stop it. <laughs> I, I, I mean, so I don't, I don't design vaccines. I test them in clinical trials. Um, so I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for the people that do design vaccines. But yes, it is incredibly frustrating to know that, um, especially for coronavirus, for, for SARS-CoV-2, um, the virus that causes COVID-19, that it is mutating at a rate that is unheard of for, for us in terms of viruses that cause human disease. Um, and it, I think, at least from a respiratory virus standpoint. Um, and so it, it really, you know, I would never have predicted we'd be in this situation two years ago when we were developing the vaccines and, and we were incredibly hopeful that that would be um, how we could really control the virus, um, but the virus is mutating at such a fast rate that it is outpacing our ability to develop and, and deploy um, vaccines. Now, the vaccines that we have do protect against severe disease, but they have far less efficacy um, with each new variant um, against protecting against um, infection. And as you mentioned, one of the things that is most frustrating, I think, is that, you know, immunity wanes over time. So, yes. you know, influenza vaccines, you have to get a new one, COVID, you have to get boosters. Um, and you mentioned earlier that when we're thinking about the broccoli shape of the hemagglutinin in the influenza virus, um, that if they target kind of the stalk of the broccoli, 
it might last longer in terms of immunity. What is the relationship between the vaccine effectiveness and immune response and the length of immunity? So, so we don't know that it would. The two are a little bit are are a little bit different. The vaccine effectiveness, but they're related at the same time. So, the vaccine effectiveness has to do with how long the antibodies and immune response persist, as well as how good the match is between the vaccine and its target. And if the target isn't evolving so rapidly because it's the stock, then the vaccine effectiveness will last longer than in one that is evolving more quickly. Um, however, the weighting of the immune response may not be helped by changing the target. The weighting of the immune response may not have anything to do with how good the match is between the vaccine and its target on the virus. For example, in influenza, some years we don't change the vaccine because the viruses that are circulating are still very similar to the viruses that were circulating the year before. And so the vaccine from the year before should still work. However, the immune response to that vaccine wanes over time. And so we have to get an annual vaccination anyway, even if the vaccine hasn't changed. Um, it may be... Um, it may be that with finding a different target that the immune response lasts longer, or it may be that something additional is needed in the vaccine to allow that immune response to stay longer. Are there ways to increase the length of the immune response? Do we know why the immune response fades? Um, so if you involve T cells, uh, so Yes, and we know a little bit about this. So B cells make antibodies. They can make them with the help of T cells and they can make them without the help of T cells. And these are both two kinds of lymphocytes or white blood cells um, that are important parts of our immune system. If you involve T cells when the B cells make antibodies, the immune response lasts longer. And there are ways to make sure that there is T cell help for those antibodies. Um, one way is um, by giving a live virus vaccine, um, such as an intranasal vaccine, um, or um, the mRNA vaccines require the T cells to help the B cells make antibodies. And so we would hope that the immune response is better than if we were to give just a protein vaccine yeah. or a, a purified protein vaccine that doesn't trigger that T cell help. And there I actually wanted to follow up on that. Mm -hmm. um, because you mentioned mRNA vaccines. Mm -hmm. And I know that you've been involved in clinical trials for the Pfizer COVID-19 mm -hmm. vaccine, which is an mRNA-based vaccine. What does the mRNA platform mean for developing universal vaccines? Like you mentioned that it requires T-cell help, so that could be good. Do they offer any other advantages toward developing universal vaccines? So, yes and no. Um, the platform is really versatile in that it is very easy to change the vaccine sequence in the mRNA and very easy to deploy that changed sequence um, into a new vaccine, as we're seeing with the bivalent vaccines that will come out this fall against the Omicron variant. However, there isn't anything inherently special about the mRNA vaccines that make it better necessarily for a universal vaccine because it's still targeting the same 
protein, the spike protein that uh, a traditional protein vaccine would target. Um, it's also easier to make a multivalent mRNA vaccine just because it's easier to make mRNA sequences, which then would um, in, in, induce the body, the immune system, to make the protein ourselves once we get the vaccine than it is to manufacture the protein and then give people a protein vaccine. So it makes it easier, it makes it faster, but there isn't anything about the, the mRNA platform necessarily that makes it better for a universal vaccine. And I also wanted to ask, we were talking about the potential for universal flu vaccines with that broccoli structure of the hemagglutinin where you can attack the stalk instead of the head. For the COVID-19 vaccine, right now, vaccines target the spike. Are they looking at different parts of the spike? Are they looking at the coat? Like what are the other bits of the coronavirus that could be attacked here? So I think people are looking at anything that could potentially improve um, the breadth of the protection. Um, and, and so it could be a more conserved part of the spike protein. It could be a different, um, it could be different proteins within the virus um, that will potentially protect against severe disease. The best target to prevent infection is the spike because that's the one that binds to the cells. Um, so if you have a vaccine um, that you want to for that you want to protect against infection, you still have to include the spike. Another way to include to increase the breadth and the longevity of a vaccine is to add an adjuvant, um, which is a compound that improves the immune response. Um, this isn't necessary for the mRNA vaccines because they act as their own adjuvants. But for protein vaccines, such as the flu vaccine, doing that does help increase the response. And can I, can I get a little more detail on that? So an adjuvant increases the immune response. What does that mean? Like, how does it work? So it's a stimula it stimulates the immune system, basically, a little bit more than the vaccine, especially a protein vaccine itself might. And so it makes a more inflammation. Um, it could make a higher antibody titer. Um, it could potentially make a broader antibody response um, or one that lasts longer. Um, for example, when we were worried about that the next pandemic would be the influenza H5N1 virus that was circulating, um, it was bird flu that was circulating in some people. Um, we created vaccines against this using our traditional technology for influenza vaccines, which is protein-based. But the vaccine against H5N1 did not induce an immune response in people. Um, maybe it was just too foreign of a virus. And so we had to give super high doses to get any sort of immune response. But if you gave an adjuvant, you could lower the dose dramatically because that adjuvant boosted the immune response and made it stronger. So it's like an, an irritant to the immune system? Basically, yeah. That's fascinating. Um, so, and that's, that's something I was thinking about is one of the things I find especially interesting about the immune system is how it can be so both very specific, but also depressingly general. So for example, allergies, are your immune system going to war against things that actually don't hurt you? Right. Like ragweed. Yes. So for a universal vaccine, we'd be looking to create an immune response that is broader, right? So immune yes. response to a virus that is a little more broad. Um, so to a part of the virus that might be common to all strains of flu. Um, would that open up the possibility of an allergic reaction or immune defense reaction to other proteins with that similar structure, even if they were on something completely innocuous, like a, a just a random thing that didn't matter? <laughs> that's a really, 
a great question. And hypothetically, maybe if there was a very similar protein. And so when, so for some infections where there are similarities enough between the proteins of the virus or in the, in the, what I'm thinking of specifically are bacteria. There's some the similarities between the proteins in the bacteria and the proteins in us that sometimes those infections can trigger an autoimmune disease where our body attacks itself because of an immune response to that bacteria. We have to be very, very careful when we're developing vaccines that we don't include anything that can trigger those self-antibodies. Um, and usually we know about that from the disease that the pathogen causes because we've seen it do that. Um, so it is... Um, something that we try to avoid, but it can make vaccine development harder. If the stock protein is not, or whatever the um, tar the other targets are for a universal vaccine, are not homologous or not similar to a self protein or something else that we um, normally come into contact with, it is unlikely to trigger any sort of allergic reaction. This reminds me of... I know in some rare cases, um, following a tick bite, mm -hmm. people can become allergic to meat. Yep, absolutely. Is, yes. is that that? It's, yes, yes. It, it, it's called beta-gal and there's a, a much longer name. But yes, basically there's a protein within the tick that is very similar to protein in beef. And if you develop an immune response if you just happen to be the, the type of person who's going to develop an immune response to that protein, you will then develop an allergy to beef. That is so sad. Um, so, and of course, people want to know, you know, it sounds like there are some challenges here because traditional influenza vaccines, for example, are targeting the head of the broccoli and, you know, traditional COVID vaccines like there are really traditional COVID vaccines, they've only existed for a year, um, are mm -hmm. targeting the, you know, the spike. Um, so there are a lot of challenges to kind of developing a more universal vaccine. How far off do you think this technology is? Oh, I, I, I um, have been talking about universal influenza vaccines for 15 years. And you know, there's a trial this summer. I don't know how successful it's going to be, um, but I I wouldn't hold off to getting your routine influenza vaccines while you're waiting for a universal vaccine. It's kind of like the holy grail of flu vaccines, I think. I hope we achieve it. I don't know how far off it is. But it definitely seems like something worth trying um, yes, and i mean absolutely. if people did get it absolutely would they still have to get it every year or is, so is I, this the sort of holy grail we're trying for where you only have to get it once or twice so it it really depends on how long the immune response lasts so um so you're if you you need to overcome two hurdles right the hurdle of the virus changing all the time and the hurdle of the immune response to the vaccine waning over time and so it is hypothetical that you overcome the, the the hurdle of the virus changing, but not the immune response decreasing over time. And so you still need the vaccine every year. And it's also hypothetical that you overcome both of these challenges. And so you may not need it every year. You might need it once every five years or once every 10 years. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's too early right now to tell until we have a, a viable vaccine in front of us. Well, Kasar, thank you so much for explaining this all to us. We may have a long wait, but we'll keep getting our shots. That sounds great. Thank you so much. Of course, all of these universal vaccines are about viruses, but we're infected with loads of other stuff, right? Bacteria, fungi, and even worms. Stay tuned.
We now know a little bit about the challenges of developing universal viral vaccines. But what if your target disease isn't a virus? What if it's a worm? We're here with Maria Elena Botazzi, a vaccine scientist who co-directs a vaccine center at the Baylor College of Medicine. She is working on multivalent anthelminthic vaccines, which are vaccines that target not viruses, but worms. Maria Elena, welcome. Hi, how are you, Bethany? It's such a pleasure to be with you and talk about worms. I do love me some worms. And I wanted to start by asking, obviously, we are not talking about a vaccine against all worms. Earthworms are fine. Which are the worms that you're kind of most concerned with? Well, there are certainly a, a different uh, levels of different worms. Um, most of the ones that we are interested in are actually also intestinal worms for the most part, or that live in large um, areas of our body, including, for example, sometimes the lymphatics, our lymphatics. Um, and for the most part, they're actually big vertebrate animals. So, you know, when you said at the beginning that they're different than viruses, the, the very big distinction is that these are, these are sometimes even macroscopic. They live outside the cells, but they live within the organs of our body. And they are very avid um, uh, eaters, uh, and they feed from the, practically also the same food that we live on. So it's a competition for you know, how these worms survive by um, sharing you know, our nutrition uh, with, with them. And that's why it makes them also so, so pathogenic because they really deplete our bodies with a lot of nutritional components, sometimes even uh, blood components. So these animals are living in our tissues. I know, for example, lungworm is a thing. It can live in the lung. Um, are they feeding off our blood systems? Are they eating cells in our systems? What, what exactly are they living on it? And what kind of are they doing within us when we're infected with these animals? This is a very good question, Bethany. And let me give you an example. So for if we take hookworms, as the word says, it's a worm that hooks and it usually hooks in the intestinal mucosal. And when they hook, they feed from blood. And the reason why they need to feed from blood is because their nutrition is degrading our hemoglobin. And when you degrade hemoglobin, they extract all the different amino acids from the degradation of hemoglobin. And what do you think happens to us humans if you feed on blood? We become anemic. And that's for one of the reasons why hookworm disease is very um, serious, because especially in little kids, you can deplete with a lot of iron, you can deplete them with a lot of proteins, you can deplete them from a lot of amino acids that you carry within the blood and therefore cause some very severe anemia. Yeah, I'm actually uh, familiar with hookworm because I grew up in the Southern United States, um, which actually has a very strong history of hookworm. Um, you would get a lot of infections with hookworm um, in kind of more of the poorer areas. Um, and it caused a lot of problems. Um, what areas are now kind of most affected by this disease? Well, to be very honest, I have to tell you, we now know that hookworm still exists in the southern states of the United States, especially in the poorest areas of Alabama, for example. Um, so it hasn't really been uh, totally uh, controlled, to be very honest, is, is the fact that we only uh, uh, find it when we look for it. Uh, and it doesn't have a lot of uh, interest because most of the times, again, these are diseases that afflict primarily poorest populations and or populations that live in very precarious health conditions. Uh, and that's the reason why, you know, they get transmitted because there are areas where there's not good sewage control or there's poor um, management of, you know, your um, water sanitation uh, and even just hygiene. Right. But besides, you know, these uh, areas in the poorest areas of the United States, hookworm is very prevalent in many other countries, including 
Central American countries, um, African countries, uh, Southeast Asian countries. So pretty much is distributed all over the world. But again, they focus on very rural, very remote in areas where there's not a lot of access to water sanitation or even health sanitation. And, you know, most of it afflicts, you know, young kids that gets this disease very early on. And unfortunately, it just prevails even all the way to when you become a really um, an adult. And we have even found hookworm disease in uh, the elderly. So once you once you get it, you pretty much, unless you really control it and you get, of course, dewormed and you get medicines for it, you continuously can uh, get um, uh, infected because we are not really interrupting the transmission of it. And this is just one of the um, worms that you work on. Um, you're also interested in, uh, it's called snail fever, and I will potentially butcher this word, schistom. Uh, schistosomiasis. Perfect. You nailed it, Bethany. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is a difficult word. So yes, that is another worm. This actually is, is one of these worms that it, they can live in different uh, um, types of tissues. Um, there's one of the schistosomiasis that is actually an intestinal schistosomiasis, but there's another one that is a genital schistosomiasis. That is very, very oh, unique, no. very, very important because it also exacerbates other diseases. If you have lacerations in your genital tissues, right, um, which usually these worms, because they are, like we said, big animals, they also cause some not only um uh, you know, not visible, uh, uh, you know, uh, issues like, you know, like feeding uh, on blood, but, you know, as they hook and as they live in these tissues, they really, you know, have very, um, uh, inf you know, they really destroy the infrastructure of your own tissue. So when, for example, the, the genital schistosomiasis live, especially in the female genital uh, tissues, they break them, they cause inflammation, they, they cause a lot of fibrosis. And for example, schistosomiasis, then it can be linked in exacerbating um, HIV infection and, and AIDS eventually. So as you can see, sometimes they cause disease on its own, but then they are paired and they exacerbate or even enhance the ability of getting other diseases. Going back, for example, to hookworm, because it's a... Uh, um, uh, I guess, you know, a parasite that feeds on blood. Imagine if you not only have anemia because of hookworm, but you also live in an area where there's high malaria endemicity, which also malaria is a parasite that causes anemia. And so the, it's, it's pretty much um, a big storm of events where you have anemia because you're malnourished, you have anemia because you have hookworm disease, you have anemia because you have malaria, you know, basically it's, it's you know, you, you really exacerbate, you know, malaria. In schistosomiasis, you exacerbate because you have a lot of uh, destruction of the tissues, which then permits other, in this case, a virus, and sometimes even other bacteria to come and uh, concomitantly also uh, provide additional suffering. And so that's, I think, the, the reason why, even though these worms maybe not well known, maybe um, they cause a slow but chronic type of disease. What I think the, the difficulty is that they, they coincide with many others and sometimes make other diseases even worse. And I think that's the reason why we need to raise awareness about the importance of all these intestinal and other types of parasitic worms. And I also wanted to ask, um, these worms, they are not only different species. Some of these worms are their own families. <laughs> um, they're not closely related to each other at all. Um, and I was kind of wondering, what does that mean in terms of treatment for these diseases? Like, does each one require a specific treatment? Is there a treatment that works for like all the worms? Is there a specific mechanism that is just kind of like anti all worms? So that's very interesting. And I can give you actually a two, two, two types of answers to that. So one, indeed, you mentioned treatments, right? And I think that 
the good news is that for uh, decades and decades, we have had, fortunately, uh, pharmaceutical companies, I have to say, they have been very generous at not only developing uh, what we call deworming drugs for many of these parasitic worms. So for example, we have albendazole, mebendazole, we have pyrantol, we have azithromycin, we have, you know, we've heard a lot about ivermectin as you, you know, in the COVID sphere, but ivermectin. Very good for worms, right? not Very good for COVID. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, even, and, and as you know, these worms Clearly, we're today we're talking primarily human uh, disease, but you know many of these worms also are of veterinary concern. So many of these mm -hmm. drugs also may have been developed in the context of veterinary drugs, right? Interventions, and these and and indeed you're right. Some of them work well for some. Some of them work um, that you can have some cross uh, a treatment, and that's why. In the early 2000s, in fact, you know, together with um, many um, uh, uh, professors uh, that you know study these types of parasitic worms, including my co-partner Peter Hotes and and um, professors like David Molyneux and Alan Fennick in in the UK, they actually push for a cocktail of deworming drugs. And now, in fact, when you go out uh, in the field. Many of the of the programs to try to um, deworm use, in fact, a cocktail of worms because we thought, why would you want to go in and deworm with one drug at a time when you can possibly put them together? And this comes to then my second point of the discussion of why we want to sort of do the same thing with multivalent vaccine strategies is that you know, it takes a lot of work and funding and, of course, uh, also implementation, you know, uh, um, logistics to go in and do one deworming at a time, right? So packaging, pa you know, uh, drugs so that you can go in and do a, a single intervention with multi-drug intervention, it has proven to be very successful. So then now when we, when we started thinking of, okay, but the worms, um, even though you can treat them, seems that they still, you don't break that ability of transmission. And so even if you deworm yourself, you if you live in these very high endemic areas, the population just get reinfected over and over again. Unfortunately, the drugs don't prepare you or, um, or induce the fact that you don't get infected again, right? These, you know, the drugs cure you when you're sick, but then if you get exposed, you get, you get it again. So that's why we need vaccines. We need we need a combination. In fact, our strategies usually are you deworm the population first because it does a couple of things, right? You know, first it cures you, but it also restores your immunological potential. And we'll talk a little bit about that. I know about how these worms are also immune modulators or immune suppressors. So by removing the worms, you restore that uh, potential of that body to be an immune ready. And then you come back in with potentially an immune therapy, right? Or an immune prevention, which is a vaccine. And in that case, it's the same strategy. Why do you want to develop a single vaccine at a time, even though, of course, you have to evaluate them, you know, each vaccine separately first to establish safety and efficacy. But then the hope is that you can also you know, batch them together and do multi-helminth vaccines and maybe do maybe a vaccine for hookworm together with schistosomiasis, maybe a vaccine with for hookworm that also goes along with other of, of the same relatively similar families, like trichuris, like um, ascaris. And then you have other parasitic worms, like for example, lymphatic filariasis, um, trachoma or river blindness. So you can maybe put them together by combining different families, as you said, or even within a similar family, put them together. And I think ultimately the key is to have multi-pronged approaches. All of this together also with other non-pharmaceutical intervention, right? You also want water sanitation. You also want education. So as you can see, as everything in this world an approach should be integrated and should be multimodal. And even within a vaccine development strategy itself, it should be also integrated and multimodal. And that I think should be the way we should approach um, developing these global health technologies moving forward. So I just wanted to go back a little bit. There are not 
any vaccines for any of these worms right now. Correct. Even though many of them are quite in advanced development, I have to say we're very um, lucky that we had a little bit of a golden age of uh, um, parasitic or neglected disease vaccines starting in the early 2000s. And for example, we have our group has two vaccine candidates for hookworm that right now are in phase two clinical trials. Uh, we have ourselves one candidate for schistosomiasis that is also being evaluated in phase two clinical trials. And then there are other groups that are at different stages also of uh, clinical development. Um, for um, some of the other helminth vaccines, some of them are in discovery, but some of them are also already in what we call starting to become in critical path, maybe evaluating its feasibility of production and scalability and target evaluation. So overall, we have some very interesting candidates, but as you know, the challenge is who supports the funding to bring them from the laboratory to the clinic, and then eventually who can be your partner to become um, your manufacturing partner. And then eventually you also want to bring in the communities and the society to uh, start preparing them of the value of having these vaccines and eventually even the acceptance of why we want to bring them into society and what's the benefit of them, right? So I actually wanted to ask a little bit about kind of the, the scientific basis for these anti-helminthic vaccines, because I can't really, one of the things I can't get over is how big these worms are. Like some of them, you can see them. They're big. <laughs> um, I mean, they're not, you know, the size of a bear or something, but they're, they're big enough to see. Um, and so I, I was wondering how does one create a vaccine against an animal that is large? Like what are the what are the mechanisms of that? Because I know when we go to create vaccines against viruses, we usually tackle something on the viral coat, right? Like a little, little protein sticking out on the viral coat. Um, do worms have that? Like what are the targets that the vaccines are going after? So very good question because you're right. You know, first of all, worms, have even different stages, right? So many parasites do, you know, for instance, even some of the intracellular parasites do, but let's say, let's take again hookworm, right? So hookworm, uh, uh, the way that, you know, it all starts where you have a, a larvae that actually lives in the environment that is infective to us, the humans, and even some animal species. This larvae has a have to have an ability of being able to penetrate our skin and our, and our bodies. So we already know that an essential function for the, for this parasite to survive is that they have to be able to get inside the host. Right. So a long time ago, we actually started looking at, you know, how can we block this uh, infection capacity of these larvae? So you start seeing, you know, are they using, enzymes to break through our tissues. And so at the beginning, we looked at some of those molecules. Then once they were inside our body, can we block some of um, their essential needs like migration needs for these larvae or molting proteins that they need to molt from a larvae into an actual adult worm? Or can we block them as they are moving from the skin they have, you know, usually they also have like an intermediary passage through the lungs, for example, as you mentioned, some of them do. Um, and then ultimately you start looking at the actual adult worm, right? And there we see, okay, how can we interfere with an essential function of a worm? And if you look at this as an essential, as an animal, we, for example, started looking for hookworm that one of the essential pathways they need is this, is their, again, nutritional pathway. So can we block, can we starve them? Can we block their feeding pathways? And that's one, one approach. For schistosomiasis, you bring the point of, is there something that we can also interfere with their, um, I guess, shell integrity, right? Their, their skin itself, 
right? Like we uh, have skin, they also have skin. And in fact, with schistosomiasis, we actually are disrupting a, uh, by messing with a, a protein that is called a tetraspanning, which is actually a protein that is essential for the worm to maintain its integrity and its structure. So it's like you're breaking off the skin of the parasite. And by breaking off the skin of the parasite, they just lose their integrity and therefore they just cannot, again, survive and feed and mold and do things. So, so, so the key here is we, the importance of research and understanding even the very basics of the pathogenesis of these worms, what, why, why they survive, what do they need to survive, how do they replicate, how do they feed, how do they, um, what are the different stages that they have? And then we try to see what are the things that based on our techniques, we can interfere with, and we can then measure because that's the other thing, right? You have to measure. If I, if I want to see that a worm has, um, is being starved to death, how can I measure that, right? So I can measure their length. I can maybe measure the women female uh, worm fecundity, because if a female uh, is starved, usually they don't really lay eggs as well as they would if they are well, well uh, fed, right? It's the same as a, as a woman, right? You want, when the woman is pregnant, you want to have them really well nutritioned so that they can then have very good offspring. So we, we, use, we take those types of analogies and then we study them. And then we uh, evaluate them, of course, in models to see if it actually makes sense and we can interfere with their, with their cycle. And, and, and the key again is to destroy something that it is very essential for their survival. And I also wanted to get back to something you'd mentioned a little bit earlier. Helminthic infections are what's called immunomodulatory. Immunomodulatory. Yes. <laughs> Big words in this episode. Um, and so I was wondering if we could talk about what does that mean and how does it affect how vaccines are developed and how worm infections are treated? Yes. And, and let's actually break that word, right? So immunomodulatory. So of course, the word modulation is easy, right? So it's so, so these worms have the ability to modulate or to shift things within our body. And by immunomodulatory, if it's indeed that they, they try to shift the function of our own immunological system. And why do they need to do that? Because our immunological system theoretically is there to destroy, you know, pathogens that come into our body. And the reason why these are parasites and as the word parasite means, generally a parasite, eventually their attempt is ideally not to kill the host and ideally that the host doesn't kill them. So their immunomodulation is intended to be able to allow us to live and them to live in a nice balanced way, right? <laughs> that's the whole intent, right? Um, and that's why most of the time, sometimes they flow under the radar, uh, but occasionally when they, they start causing diseases, when they, of course, immunomodulate to the detriment of us, right? Because that's what we want to look. And so they cause too much inflammation or too much immune suppression that then, like we said before, they may be giving us the propensity of then getting infected with other things or the fact that you know, we are not able to fight other things. And so that's usually the, 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 the bad thing about these worms, right? That they suppress us or they modulate us so that we do not respond enough to kill them, but then we may be um, uh, allowing other things to actually take, take over and, and, and use that immunosuppression or immune modulation to us then being infected with other things and, and have these diseases with other other pathogens, right? So, so that's why usually our approach of developing a vaccine is, as I mentioned earlier, ideally has to be linked with 
first deworming or using a chemotherapeutic approach first, because what we want to do is remove that immune modulation or immune suppression so that then when we actually come in with a vaccine, our body is ready to, has a, a, a functional immunological response that is not suppressed, right? But then at the same time, we need to see what are the best ways to induce an immune response that then can tackle and destroy the worm. And there we have, again, that approach of looking at what is the weakest links that are in within these parasites. And, and, and as I mentioned, it can be a structural weakest uh, link. It can be a feeding, a nutritional. It can be so, some function that is essential for them in, in some cases to be transmitted or to be replicated or to, um, you know, basically duplicate itself. Does it make sense, Bethan? Yeah. Um, and I was actually kind of wondering, you know, you mentioned that there's several options in trials. Um, some of them are in, you know, second cl uh, clinical trials. Um, and I was wondering for a multivalent vaccine or a panhelminthic vaccine, which would be like all worms, but it wouldn't actually be all worms. It'd probably be just like three or four. Um, would that just be a combination of different specific vaccines all in one vial? Or is there a move to kind of make a specific scientific attack that works against many different types of worms? You know, that is ex a very good question because indeed that's the challenge, right? So, because first of all, you have to develop them individually because you have to first show that individually they work for that, for their specific parasite. Then you have, if you're going to put them together, indeed, you're right. The first thing we usually do is we just com either combine them and by combining, meaning, yes, you can theoretically put different candidates in a single vial or you can actually do the immunization um, by immunizing at the same time, even if it's different injections, right? You know, you can inject in a single injection because it's in the single vial, or you can have the vaccines in two different vials and you just inject at the same time, right? To induce the response at the same time. But you need to be able to then distinguish which response is being, you, you know, are you responding to which, which vaccine? And that one vaccine is not interfering with the response to the other other vaccine, right? So, you know, that's why it's a little, a little bit more complicated than, you know, it's easy said, but more complicated to implement. But then you're right. Then the other option is if you have a family, for example, if we take all the soil transmitted helminths and, and, and they all share a similar um, uh, target, right? You know, for example, you know, if we look, one of our targets is an aspartic protease, which we know is a protein that is essential for, again, hemoglobin degradation. But if the aspartic protease is only essential for hookworm, but it's not really essential for, you know, ascaris or tricuris, then you can't really find a consensus sequence amongst, you know, that it can, can protect against all three, right? So, so, probably it's going to be much more difficult to find a single molecule that can tackle all. So the most um, logical may be that it's more this multivalent um, or, or, or combination of candidates that are in a single vial or, or in a vaccination strategy approach where at least you're giving them at the same time. And that also could have challenges because, you know, different vaccines, for example, have different storage requirements. Some might expire at different rates, right? So you have, you might have one vaccine that's good for, you know, two years, and then you have another, well, it's only good for about six months. That you know, is correct. Or they have to be stored at negative 40 or. <laughs> that is correct. And that's why, for example, in our vaccine center, we always look at those things very early on, right? So first of all, we also even look at how even you're going to deploy such a vaccine, right? You know, who's the target population? Uh, you know, when will you be giving this vaccine? It's very unlikely that a government is going to support a hookworm vaccine only approach, right? They probably need to integrate it with other vaccination strategies, right? You know, whether it's through the uh, expanded uh, vaccination programs that you are, they already have, or maybe through some school age program, maybe it's even paired with a nutritional program, right? So there's many ways of how you do delivery 
of the actual vaccination. And, you know, we've seen a lot of uh, issues and constraints, even from the COVID uh, um, lessons learned, right, of how do you deploy um, and so then we move backwards, right? And we say, okay, so then what's what's the characteristics? As you said, you know, we need vaccines that are, um, if especially they're going to be deployed in low resource poor areas that don't have most of the times even storage or even electricity. How can we make vaccine formulations that are sturdy and that they're stable, that they they can be stored long term? And that's, of course, eventually how we, for example, our, our philosophy has always looked at, can we look at very simple conventional technologies that are also affordable, that use methodologies that can enable us to make them in a way that they can production-wise have these characteristics? And, and again, so, it, you know, so then we move backwards and we say, okay, so if we were going to make a protein-based vaccine, how do we do that? If you're going to make an RNA vaccine, how would it work? If you indeed want to do combination vaccines, what's the best way to combine them? As you said, you have to make sure that they are um, that they can be combined, right? That they don't interfere, not only interfere uh, but for storage, but that they also don't interfere immunologically and that they don't interfere in the production because a manufacturer wants to try to um, leverage the resources. You know, you also don't want to have to build factories for different vaccines when you want to try to leverage, you know, a single modular, maybe flexible production facility where you can make multiple vaccines that then you're going to combine. So indeed, vaccine development is very complicated, but now we are, we know, at least what we do know now is that there are ways that we can certainly um, accelerate, that we can um, leverage, that we can um, join forces together so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time we want to develop a new vaccine um, candidate, for example. And I was just wondering, it sounds like there are a lot of challenges um, toward developing a multivalent um, anti-helminth vaccine or a pan-helminth vaccine. Um, what do you think is the biggest challenge? Because I think I, I've heard there are scientific challenges, but also it sounds like there are a lot of kind of sociological challenges, right? The challenges of getting there and distributing. Um, what do you think is, is kind of the biggest one? I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think we scientists um, most likely will be able to address scientific challenges because that's where we academics and certainly, you know, those of us who work in this field, that's our bread and butter, right? You know, we, we are creative, we're innovative, you know, technology advances, new, new ways of detection, new ways of, you know, production, right? You know, those things are doable. The challenges that are very difficult are the ones that you just said, the social um logistical, um, you know, implementation, which comes together with financial, right? Because someone's going to have to support, you know, the investments of this. But in addition to those are the political challenges, right? You know, of, of you know, when, how, how you're going to really even bring this into policy, right? Into, into, into real delivery, into real implementation work. And that is very difficult because worms, parasitic worms, or to be quite honest, any disease that really afflict poor people, any disease that are not, uh, you know, cause a big, you know, pandemic, you know, issue, or that are not high mortality diseases that, you know, that people die, um, but that indeed are diseases that, afflict uh, chronically and that you can live with them, but you live in, a, in very precarious health conditions, seem not to grab as much attention, I have to say. And that's been our struggle, right? You know, working on this for the last 20 years, we're moving our vaccine strategies, but clearly they're moving at a real turtle pace, right? Very slow, um, very patchy funding, very patchy support, very patchy, you know, like you, you know, the, the social forces uh, are, are, are a challenge. And uh, unfortunately, those are man-made challenges, right? Um, and so we just need to 
advocate more for it, have to show that for the world to live prosperous, to be to live in peace, to live in a way where we can a- achieve um, equity, equity in health, equity in all sorts of equity, we need to give the opportunity of everybody having the, uh, the right of access to essential, not only medicines, but right every ha- everybody has to have access to health. Well, Maria, Elena, thank you so much for being here and for your work. And I hope that we can all get together someday and beat the worms. I agree. I think we can do it. It just needs a lot of people like you that you know are interested, curious, and that can share this with your audience. A lot of people like me that are you know scientifically curious, also advocating for more interest from our certainly our governments, communities, funders to make it happen. For more information on Maria Elena Botazzi and Kosser Talat, we've got links to the publications that we've talked about and more at scienceforthepeople.ca. While you're here, please do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Give us a follow on Twitter and Facebook. We love to hear feedback on what we do and we will respond. If you go to our website, scienceforthepeople.ca, we also have a Patreon page and a donate button where you can support our hardworking crew and keep the show free of ads with a one-time or a monthly donation. If you can't do that, a five-star review on Apple Podcasts would always, always make our day, no matter what, no matter how you listen. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs> <laughs>